is First Word, a creative writing podcast from Lutruita, Tasmania. I'm Sam George Allen, editor at the First Word Journal, an online publication for first-time writers. Every episode, I talk to an established author about their craft and their career and provide a writing prompt for listeners to respond to with their own creative work. In this, our first season, we're focusing on creative nonfiction, the art of telling true stories. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Linawena people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present, and I acknowledge the tradition of storytelling that has continued on the continent known as Australia for more than 60,000 years. My guest today is Erin Hortle, a Tasmanian-based author. Her essays and short fiction have been published in a range of Tasmanian and Australian publications, including Island, Kill Your Darlings, Mianjin, and the Australian Humanities Review. Her debut novel, The Octopus and I, was published by Alan and Unwin in 2020, and we sat down together to talk about writing rituals, the vital importance of tidying up, and how to navigate the junction between truth and fiction. One of the things that I really liked about, you know, the stack of your work that I read just before we had this conversation, so starting with the um, the piece about the ambergris and the whales, um, I really love how kind of connected, I guess, to scholarship your work is. And that piece is obviously especially connected academically because it was in an academic publication. But also, you know, your work on gender and surfing and and your work on the non-human, it's all really grounded in scholarship. And I'm really interested in the process, um, you know, the ways in which you approach that when you're writing stuff, especially because you you do write for a lay audience as well. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really great observation. And I think um, in many regards, I'm a, a product, I guess, of um, my upbringing and my education, like we all are, but also of my ideology. And again, like we all are. So because I spent so many years at uni, um, I did a PhD in creative writing and cultural theory. So I, I spent so much time reading scholarship that that type of scholarship became the lens through which I saw the world. And so these pieces that um, you've mentioned are all to varying degrees, what I would probably call personal essays. But mm. in terms of process, there'd, there'd be something in my life which would strike me and stay with me and it would be something that would often bug me in a really particular way yeah. and I just would find that I wanted to figure out how to process it. Mm. And for me, I think I think that was when I realised that I actually felt like I was a writer as opposed to someone who writes. It was when I realised I needed to write it down to actually kind of understand it. Yeah. Um, and so it's almost like a process of um, self-exploration. It makes it sound so narcissistic. But <laughs> I'd be like, here's this thing that's happened. I'm just going to quickly craft it into a quick narrative. Yeah. And then I want to figure out what's going on. And so I would apply different um, theoretical frameworks to it, possibly mm. to make sense of what's gone on. Yeah. Um, and then would edit and hone that into something vaguely publishable and kind of pitch it depending on my audience, whether it's academic yeah. or lay. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, that, you know, that idea of kind of meaning making as you or sense making as you write. Something that Gia Tolentino talked about in her book, uh, Trick Mirror, she, I think in the introduction, she talks about like, she says, I can't think if I'm not writing. Yeah. And I love that as a, a 
conscious way of approaching, yeah, dealing with particular experiences. Yeah, I've written about this and then edited out of a number of pieces, which yeah. is why it comes straight to mind. But <laughs> I had this feeling um, once, I remember, when circumstances meant that um, I wasn't writing at all and I almost felt like I was wearing, you know when you're in um, like in a pool in the ocean and you have goggles on and they like half fill up with water <gasps> yes. and you can see the waterline or perhaps you're wearing goggles and you kind of like half submerge yourself and you can see that waterline. I almost felt like they, like that was the words that I needed to drain out of me, yeah. if that makes sense. Like it's it's almost just quite tangible when I'm not able to write that build up, mm. that flow of words that kind of builds up almost with pressure. Um, and I feel like, especially when I'm around things that are frustrating or poignant, mm. I feel like it's really, really difficult to process those those feelings or those thoughts unless I'm able to kind of lay them out and then make sense of them through writing them into something. And, yeah. so, and sometimes that comes out in fiction, so it's yeah. not even like a literal representation of it. Mm. It's like you take that feeling and you turn it into something. But sometimes um, nonfiction is the best way to process it is to actually try to do justice to that moment and then understand it through, yeah, through different ways of approaching it or thinking it through. Yeah. And how did you get to this point? I mean, you know, <laughs> like how did you get, how, how does anyone get to the point where they're so embedded in their writing practice that they need it as a way to, yeah, to interpret the world, I guess, and experiences? I don't think it came naturally to me. <laughs> I think I taught myself yeah. to become that person by doing it. And yeah. then it just became force of habit, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I always loved to, I've always loved books, mm -hmm. um, always loved to read um, widely, you know, as, as a kid and through my teenage years and I always loved to write. It was my, you know, my favourite thing to do all through school. Um, and then I had a bit of a break from it and, um, yeah, when I was at uni and I sort of came back to it in the third year of my undergrad degree mm. um, and it was just like this kind of reawakening um, and then I followed that through. So I did honours and then a PhD in creative writing and through particularly that four or five years of honours and the PhD, I didn't do anything else. And so I think that was kind of how how I taught myself to do it. But in terms of I sort of mentioned that like in, in third year uni it almost felt like a reawakening. I've, it was a really specific moment. Mm. Um, so I'm a surfer and absolutely love that and had, you know, read, you know, through through my teenage years and early 20s, had sort of vaguely picked up surf magazines and put them back down again. And I often felt like words, or I, I did, I believed that words could never do surfing justice at all. Um, and then it would have been in my second or third year of uni that Tim Winton's Breath came out, right. which is a novel that, um, you know, I, I don't love it holistically <laughs> um but the way that Winton wrote about surfing to me I went oh my goodness he's he's actually captured the beauty of the ocean in a way that makes sense it doesn't jar for a surfer um it's lyrical and it's poetic and he was able to actually capture the mood of the surf all through words and I thought that's so she captures the wrong word he's composed it yeah I think, I think right. Composing is a better way of approaching it. And I thought, I want to be able to do that. Um, and I gave it a crack and I couldn't at yeah. all. Sure. And then I thought, okay, I, I need to 
be a better writer if yeah. I ever want to actually do justice to that feeling of being in the surf. And yeah. I, I kind of worked at that until I got to a point um, towards the end of my first novel where I felt like I could write a couple of surf scenes and and I could. Yeah. Or I felt like I could. Yeah. Maybe someone will read it and say, no, that's rubbish. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> to kind of go back to your question, Sam, it's like I, I taught, I guess I made myself do it by practising. Yeah. And now I've got to a point where I can't not do it. Yeah. Well, I love that. Um, when you were practicing, were you, aside from Breath by Tim Winton, were you looking at any other kind of uh, cultural lodestones to like judge your progress by? No. No. <laughs> In a nutshell. I, it was more, I think, a process of self reflection in a way and mm. goal setting. So I'm colorblind. So mm. I was always. Really, and I think I kind of use that as an excuse to never try with visual arts, but I always yeah, right. would have that moment, I remember at school, where you see that image in your head and yeah. then you draw or paint it and it looks nothing like what you imagined. Yep. Um, I think writing can kind of work in that same way. You can have mm. this idea of perhaps it's a feeling or a moment or a particular character and you have a really strong sense of what you want to create on the page Yeah. Um, and it doesn't look like what you kind of set out to do and so I think it was and so that was what surfing was for me writing about surfing I think it was that that process of self-reflection of like does it match up with the with what I intended or what I was hoping to do Mm. um and it it often doesn't actually match up but because it will take a life of its own but it'll warp and change into something that's a little bit different but will actually almost sometimes help you then reflect on that thing you were trying to write about in a different way yeah. Through the process of having written about it. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think it, I'm pretty sure it's Ira Glass talked about this, like that process when you're developing your skill set, like you're developing your craft and you have, he calls it taste. He's like, and so you, you know what's good <laughs> and you're not, you're not there yet. And it can yep. be a really frustrating process to oh, continue so to, yeah, to refer to the image in your mind and go, it's not there yet. I mean, how do you, how did you? push through that, you know, sense of frustration? Um, I wrote about other stuff. Mm. I wrote my way into it. I think there was other stuff that I could write about and get better at in, in increments um, that allowed me to have faith that if I kept working, I would get there. Yeah. So I think it was, I mean... So there's this this idea in educational theory called um, a learner's zone of proximal development. So this idea Catchy. that yeah, <laughs> ZDP. Um, <laughs> so it's this idea that you know learning should always be a challenge, but yeah. it shouldn't be unachievable. And so if, I set, sure. if we set ourselves goals that are completely unachievable, yeah, or if a teacher sets a student goals that are completely unachievable, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to get there and they'll get disheartened. Yeah. Um. So it was a matter of finding goals that would push me yeah but that would be within my zone of proximal development yeah, so it would, yeah, yeah. would be within within what I could achieve and so for example if I couldn't get that lyrical writing about surfing perhaps mm. I would try to write about the way the water moved in a different way or perhaps sure. I would try to write about a particular person or idea um or cultural phenomenon or, or yeah. whatever it is um and then I would kind of come back to that idea mm. of mm. surfing yeah. yeah and also I mean I guess when I'm thinking about surfing here, I'm thinking about how I've written about it in fiction, but actually writing creative nonfiction about surfing allowed me to sort of work my way into 
writing fiction about surfing. Yeah, interesting. Um, because I had, I guess I had a different agenda with the creative nonfiction. It yeah. was more critical um, rather than just purely aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, which I guess, I don't, I don't know, sort of proves the truth of, you know, writing practice as this kind of mosaic, patchworky, broad thing rather than something linear that you just develop in one direction. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And obviously that's relevant to you because you are a fiction and a nonfiction writer. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that, like, because obviously, like all writers, you take inspiration from your lived experience for everything that you write. How do you decide which is going to end up fiction and which is going to be a nonfiction piece? In terms of moments, I think you used the word mosaic before. Mm. Um, I think for fiction, I don't literally take moments from my life. Mm. I, what I take is impressions, yeah, sure. I suppose, yeah. and I will kind of compose them into something that is fictional or made up mm -hmm. or you or kind of compose those sorts of moments or impressions through or filter it through the perspective of a character mm -hmm. who's fictionalised. So it, it needs to be kind of crafted into what's happening with the fiction. Yeah. Whereas with the nonfiction, I think, like back to what I was saying earlier about those moments that niggle me that yeah. I want to write out as a whole, I, th I think it's it's more extended moments of my life mm -hmm. um, that come into the nonfiction as opposed to sort of fleeting impressions which yeah. go into the fiction. I think, it, think it's more about... Yeah, it's length. It's also a little bit to do with nonfiction. I feel like I want to be careful about um, how I'm representing other people as well. Mm -hmm. And so often with nonfiction, things I won't write about are, you know, my partner, my family, my yeah. friends, because I don't necessarily want to tell their story or filter their story yeah, in, sure. in ways that, that could be problematic to our relationship or not representative of the truth of a moment to them. Yeah. But you're okay with writing about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that I noticed about a lot of your work is that it is, you know, explicitly or not, but it's politically engaged. I mean, the stuff that you write about surfing and gender is fantastic in terms of its, like, political... Uh, political what? Goals? It feels like there is a goal there to try to make change. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, I was thinking, uh, well, it's, it's something that comes back to me a lot is, and so I'll frame it up in reference to feminism, mm. is I think for feminism to be at its best, it needs to be idealistic, mm. in my opinion. Yeah. And often the way, like, so we set these goals, we think here is something that we want to aspire to. It's, it's, I think it's a fundamentally creative movement, but often the method by which we get to that idealistic goal mm. is through calling things out, through critical thinking, through understanding the flaws with society so that we can understand, yep, here is how things are mm. and now we need to figure out how to change. And so it is, and that's something that I think is at once pessimistic and optimistic or at once critical and idealistic. Yeah. And so I think my writing is a reflection of my attitude to, to feminism. Mm. Um, so I work through a process of criticism mm -hmm. to figure out what is that goal, where are we trying to go yeah. and how might we get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do we get there when it comes to surfing and, and the... <laughs> 
<laughs> the persistent externalization of women from the from the scene. Yeah, it's interesting. It's changing really quickly. Yeah. These last three or four years, um, it's it's probably been about three, oh, it's, yeah, it's probably been about four years since I I had my last piece on. Mm. Maybe three years since yep. I had my last. Piece Three on. years almost to the day. Oh, right. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> on Feminism Pub- um, Surfing Published. Yeah. Um, and since that time, there's pay parity um, really? in the professional surfing scene. And actually, the I'm pretty sure it's the CEO, mm. um, if not someone really high up in the World Surf League, is yeah. um, a woman. So I think the director or the CEO is a yeah. woman. Um, and it's shifted the focus significantly to this sense of um, – yeah, of of equality in, in terms of the professional yeah. sphere. And I think that is actually filtering down and filtering out. Um, it's also, I think I'm, and I was, it's interesting to reflect on, um, I think I'm a part of a now slightly older generation when I look mm. at the younger generation of female services, there's a lot more of mm. them in the water um, and a lot more kind of com- communities of, of women in the water, whereas yeah. I was very much when I was growing up you know, there was maybe one or two um, sure, as opposed to groups. Yeah, <laughs> So I actually right. think, yeah, it's sort of shifting and it kind of makes you go, what is it that has shifted it? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking that. But, like, I think the stuff that you write and all the kind of, you know, yeah, creative engagements with these issues that people recognise, they form this big, please forgive the pun, wave <laughs> that, that makes change you know it's yeah. a cumulative thing right a hundred percent and and that's why when I, you kind of talk about something like feminism which is sort of striving mm. for some kind of equality mm. um there needs to be that critical work yeah and i actually think it's uh, is responsibility too hard a word possibly um but but to a degree i think there is the responsibility of an older generation to mm. create space. Yeah. And like I think writing critically is a way to create space for yeah. the younger generation yeah. to step into. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love thinking about, yeah, the kinds of ripple effects of these things that we write because, you know, I think about the pieces that you've written about being a woman and being a surfer and how not every surfer is going to read them, not every person is going to read them, but key people are going to read them and then disseminate those ideas to their immediate circles and then they go on and then it joins this broader conversation. And it just makes me feel really happy about the craft of, yeah, telling your own stories and the way it contributes to cultural shifts and that sense of community that exists kind of invisibly outside of the work. And there's something really surreal about that idea, I think, of being a published writer. And so you have these thoughts, you process them on the page, and then you mm. think, I want to put these out there. And then suddenly you find your voice in a broader conversation. Yeah. Or in, in a broader discourse. And, you know, people will respond or not respond. You can't control how how your voice sits in that conversation. Yeah. But it it is in that conversation. Mm. And I think I think that's something that's worth kind of I don't know, taking a moment to think about if when you get your first piece of writing or like, yeah, those first times you published that that you're actually you're speaking to people. Yeah. And alongside people. Yeah. I was gonna ask you about who you thought about when you're writing. Like whether you have a an audience in mind. Yeah, sometimes. Different pieces have different audiences. Mm. Um I think 
as I'm writing, so like in terms of the writing process, I don't, I don't write with an audience in mind yeah. usually at all. Um, I think I write to make sense mm. of things. When I edit, and particularly if I'm editing with a particular publication in mind, yeah. that's often when it kind of clarifies who who that audience is. Um, so it's sort of yeah, for me, I guess I guess I I I write kind of organically, and then I edit intentionally. That's that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's probably shared by a lot of writers. I think the aspect of publication is really important, right? Because yeah, absolutely, you might you might pitch the same thing to two different publications, and the one that it gets accepted for will end up very different in the final form to what it might have been if it, if it was accepted in the other. Yeah, but also you're like often like you you're not going to be picked up by a publication unless you're tailoring sure. the piece or yeah. the pitch to what they're after and who their readership mm. is as well. And so I think that's that's kind of when that um, professional aspect comes in, writing stops being something just for you yeah. and starts being something where it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to work within a market. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that was definitely kind of as I was figuring out how to be a writer was definitely a big learning curve. It's right. like people won't just want to randomly publish what Erin thinks. <laughs> um Actually, they they have those really yeah, no. <laughs> um, they have really specific needs and desires. Sure. Those publications, and yeah. it's about tailoring what Erin thinks to mm. um, the agenda of those particular publications. Mm. Which I guess is another aspect of sort of recognizing where you fit into the broad tapestry of the conversation, yeah. 100%. and the publishing. Yeah, yeah, and it's not work. like. Um, that just makes it seem super mercenary. It's not to say that you like strip yourself or like your agenda of it. It's just a matter mm. of like finding for that piece the right publication yeah. or finding the right publications for you as a writer as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's mercenary. I think it's practical. Yeah. You know, you have to think about, especially if you want to be a writer who makes, ugh, I hesitate to say make money because it's <laughs> difficult to yeah. make money, especially if you're just freelancing, but someone who makes a career out of it, then you do have to be practical about where where your, where Aaron's thoughts are going to be yeah. best presented. hundred percent. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about process on like a very prosaic level. Like what does it look like when you're writing? Like literally? <laughs> Yes, literally. And also on like the next abstraction level, like if you're working on a piece, say you're working on, say you're working on a nonfiction piece, you've had accepted for publication, but mm -hmm. you haven't written it yet. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? like? Yeah. Um, okay. I'll start literally. Yep. Uh, tidy room. I can't, uh -huh. I can't write yep. in, in and amongst mess. Yep. Um, and it, I prefer it to be an aesthetically pleasing mm -hmm. space as well, but it doesn't necessarily have to be um, because essentially at times you have to get the job done. Sure. But it always has to be tidy and ordered, I think, because my thoughts are so scattered. Um, right. <laughs> so it's an like, external order. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, I write in chunks. So I write on straight onto a computer because I edit as I go um, and I definitely write in chunks. I find um, my nonfiction because it tends to be mostly personal essays, it, there'll be sort of vignettes or extended yeah. moments of, you know, of, of telling a story of yeah. a moment from my life or someone else's life. But I'll, I'll kind of approach those sort of vignettes um, 
as if they were fiction. Mm. Um, and so it's using those sort of like show, don't tell kind yep. of techniques. Mm-hmm. I usually will start with them because I want to have them framed up so I can then position the essay side of it yeah. around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's a matter of figuring out that argument. I think on the page yeah. so I don't plan. Mm-hmm. I write. Yeah, right. Um, but I'll section it into chunks and then I will um, write, once I've written it, I will handwrite a plan. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, on a piece of paper next yeah. to the computer. Yeah. And then the plan is, so like I was saying before, I write organically, but mm-hmm. I edit intentionally. Yeah. And so I can't plan it until I've written it. Mm-hmm. But the plan is actually for the edit. Yeah. Right. And that always has to be on a piece of paper because I don't have two computer screens and I need to be able to use that as a reference point um, for while I'm editing. Yeah. And then I'll edit into shape. Great. Yeah. I love that. That's very, that's, that's a real process. Yeah. <laughs> a real step-by-step process. Um, but, like, to be honest with you, I, I use the same process for, like, writing novels. Yeah. It's like I, I kind of have to feel it out and think it out on the page and mm. then handwrite the plan. Mm. And I don't know when that became the process, but it, it 100% is for everything. Yeah. I really like it. I like, yeah, I like this, like, writing organically and then figuring out the kind of structure that you're going to slot over the work and make it fit into things yeah I probably follow a similar process yeah 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 except I write in do you use Scrivener no yeah people rave about it but I've never even actually seen it yeah these days I can't conceptualize like anything longer than sort of 1500 words in a word document what does Scrivener allow that word doesn't uh Visual agility, so moving between sections really quickly and easily um, and you can, you know, so the way I often write long things is I will I section them out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those sorts of vignettes, I'll put one, each one on a separate section and then there's a view in Scrivener where you can view all those sections as index cards where you just have like a, mm. a tiny summary of them. And it's so easy for like reordering and restructuring and going, oh, actually, the argument will work better if these two go next to each other or if these uh-huh. bookend it. Um, and, you know, you just do away with scrolling. That sounds so good. <laughs> it's a dream. Yeah, I really love it. Yeah. And there's also this great thing which I've been using heaps for my PhD work where you can view two sections or two documents that you're working on just side by side within the program. And I find that really good for referring back to, yeah. you know, your previous statements, the things yeah. that you've already talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And I then are you using one screen for that? But yeah, I only use one screen. Yeah. But I also write by hand all the time. And yeah. we were talking before about editing by hand and I think that aspect of it um, – that just kind of shift in like brain processing yeah. makes such a big difference. Yeah. So after I do, um, so that, yeah, just what we were speaking about before, after I do the, um, you know, the, I'll, I'll write the plan, mm. re-edit it, um, then I'll rewrite the whole thing, print it out, and then I'll do a hard copy edit. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, follows on yeah. in the process. So it's. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? You don't realise you have such a clear process until you talk about it. And then you go, <laughs> wow, I'm actually really regimented. Yeah. It's, yeah, especially because, you know, most of the writers I know do not think of themselves as regimented people. Yeah. But then, yeah, exactly as you say. And I started by say. saying that I need a clean space because I'm not like, <laughs> <laughs> like 
like I'm not disorganised. <laughs> yeah, I'm so disorganised <laughs> in my writing, but actually I'm not at all. Yeah. Maybe I just need a clean space. Yeah. I do too, yeah. yeah. Do you have a, a dedicated writing space at home? No. Well, the kitchen table. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I've, um, I'm fortunate enough to have relatively recently moved to a quite like a reasonably large property um down on the Tasman Peninsula and it we've got like a little um self-contained unit amazing yeah the dream yeah which I'm going to turn into like an office yeah incredible um for myself but kind of just haven't had my act together enough to do that hey you've Um, been busy yeah (laughs) but it'll get there yeah yeah have you ever done like writing retreats you know there's like um Varuna and and things like that. No, I never have. I like the idea, but mm. I also think that my life is often a writing retreat, and that sounds that sounds really I don't even know what. Um, <laughs> but like I I wrote um, so I wrote my PhD and my first novel, and actually um, like the majority of my writing has been done from a property um, that. This just makes me sound like a property baron. Like re- they're really, really kind of basic setups, um, but they're just in cool areas. So on Bruni Island, it, yeah, wow. it was like a humpy in the bush. Yeah. Um, Wait, what's a humpy? Ah, uh, it's like a, a Tassie word for yeah. like a, a kind of sh- a shack that you often will live in while you're building, but it probably doesn't have gotcha. hot water or power yeah. or, or whatever. This one had power. Yeah. No hot water for quite a while. But I was kind of like living in the bush of Bruni Island. Yeah. Um, writing five days a week and being really, you know, nine to five about it. Yeah. So I kind of, there's a part of me that looks at writing retreats and goes, yeah, it'd be amazing because people cook and clean for you. But actually I I sort of, I think that'd be really amazing if you lived in the city and, you know, to get away from things. But I felt Mm. like my life was actually already away from things and dedicated to writing. So Mm, it it wasn't a priority. It's one of the the many little luxuries of living in Tasmania, I think. think The proximity of away. Yeah. Like even if you live in Hobart, you can go somewhere so fast and be somewhere that feels completely removed. And that is so conducive to the creative process for so many people. Yeah. Whereas if you live in a city that takes you a couple of hours to actually get out of, you can see why a writing retreat would have that appeal. Yeah. 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 Although I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people I know who really love the writing retreat model, they have young families. Yeah. And I think especially, especially women, they love and treasure just the space to write. Yeah. Nine to five without competing um, demands on their time. Yeah. And it's interesting because there was a lot of um, stuff in the media or sort of in writing writerly communities mm. a year or two ago that was talking about how how to make writing retreats more equitable yeah, right. for women with young children and talking right. about models of having like daycare in yeah. writing retreats and things like that because not all we, like women are often mm. um or disproportionately primary caregivers um and things like that so there's this idea that in order for women to actually be able to access writing retreats what happens to children not yeah. everyone actually has the benefit of people who can look after their kids so ha- how do we actually make them more inclusive yeah um which is interesting because at the same time i think well maybe you want to not be near the kids to actually have that yeah that distance um even if it's just that sort of intellectual distance mm. away from the family life so yeah it's, it's interesting to kind of think about competing demands there yeah yeah i wanted to ask you um you know we all receive 
piles of writing advice when we declare ourselves writers. I want to know a piece of writing advice that you think is garbage and I want to know your good bit of writing advice that you actually give someone who is starting out. Um, write what you know is yeah. garbage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is that what everyone says? It's what a number of people have said, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I agree. I fully agree. Because I think it's how, how to be a pedestrian writer. Mm. And I think what it does is stifles creativity and curiosity. Um, so I think like the, some of the best writing I've done is when or I think or some of what I think is the most interesting writing I've done is when I've taken something that I haven't quite known what it is. Yeah. And then I've followed a whole heap of leads. Yeah. To think about it in a whole range of different ways because I'm curious about this thing and that curiosity brings an energy to the writing. But also like if you're curious about it, probably other people will be as well. It's often when you find an audience. Yeah. Whereas if you're like, I know this thing, I know it inside out, so I'm going to write it. Well, you know, so what? Often, not always. Yeah, yeah. Like everything, often but not always, no universals. But I agree with you and I think that, you know, I think something that a lot of nonfiction writers have in common is that curiosity, whether they're writing about other subjects or whether they're writing personal essay, because it's driven by curiosity to, as you say, like figure stuff out yeah. and and follow that, you know, niggling life experience. And, and that's driven by the same curiosity that drives you to, you know, go, I've suddenly developed an interest in ice fishing and now I must write 4,000 words on it. Yeah, 100%. Um, the, the best piece of advice, oh, it's like, boring practical advice mm. but um don't just write when you feel like it is this also it's good advice no no it's just it's, it's good advice um, you need to like I, I you need to approach it professionally if you ever want to get it done you'll never the only like a piece of advice I was once given by someone um who was a stranger oh good um <laughs> and it was like and it, it was a really odd context um but anyway I won't go into the details of that but they said well the only way you'll ever write a novel is if you write it and like well it's, that's hard to argue with that it's that's so true, true. <laughs> and the only way you write it is if you create space to sit down and yeah, write and the yeah. same goes with with creative nonfiction or with shorter pieces you're never actually going to write them like you might have all these different ideas but you can never actually sit down and write them mm. um you're never gonna write them yeah and so but often you're really really inspired in moments when you can't write so you need to put it to one side yeah until you can and I heard this Really interesting um, moment. I just caught a conversation between Sarah Konoski and Ben Folds on okay. the other day. Yeah. And they were talking about a musician who I can't remember the name of. Yeah. Really, really famous musician. And I don't know why it's disappeared. <laughs> but um, Sarah Konoski was talking about this interview she heard with this other musician. Yeah. And he was driving along a really big highway somewhere in the States. And he said, This muse appeared to him with this song like a gift on a platter oh and it was God. the most amazing song. Yeah. And he said to the muse, this is great, but can you please come back at 3 p.m. tomorrow <laughs> when I'm in the studio? <laughs> and then 3 p.m. the next day he's in the studio and the muse came back and he wrote the song and it turned into a hit, which is like, and it's a really famous song and I'm kicking myself that I can't remember the name. I'll look it up. Um, I'll look it up and I'll put it in the notes yeah. so everyone can can also, yeah, experience it. And it was just, and then Ben Folds was laughing and he said, yeah, that's when you know you're a professional because... <laughs> 
because you bend inspiration. There's this yeah. idea that inspiration is this sort of ethereal thing that oh, yeah. is so mystical and you must go with it when it arrives, yeah. whatever you said. The job of a professional is to bend inspiration to your schedule. Um, and I think, you know, even if you don't necessarily want to be a complete professional writer, I think mm. to a degree you're never actually going to write stuff unless you actually write at the time you have available to write because we yeah. all have really busy lives. Yes. And so that's my piece of advice. Just You just need to write when you can write, yep. even if you don't necessarily feel like it, and you'll often write your way into inspiration. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's wonderful. And Erin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've Thanks. had such a wonderful time talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Erin Hordle's debut novel is The Octopus and I, which is out now through Alan and Unwin. You can find a link for purchase available on our website, along with links to the pieces that we mentioned in today's episode. During our conversation, Erin mentioned that a lot of her non-fiction writing emerges out of experiences that niggle her that have stuck in her mind and continued to irritate her like sand in an oyster until she can write her way around and through them. So your writing prompt this episode is to do the same. Think back to a moment in your life that continues to cause you friction. It might be a moment of anger or embarrassment or maybe joy or disbelief. And see what happens when you write through this moment. What is clarified? What is smoothed over? What surprising conclusions do you find yourself coming to? And as always, if you're happy with the piece that you end up writing, please consider submitting your work to the First Word Journal. Find our submissions portal at firstwordpod.com.au. This project is assisted through Arts Tasmania by the Minister for the Arts. You can keep up to date with the podcast and the First Word Journal on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at First Word Pod.